sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We've had the blessed privilege these days to be in this community with this uh, beautiful group of brothers uh, that we spend some time with these days, and we have the sisters here with us now this morning, and their children and young ladies. We're glad to have you here, too. And there's some visitors here we have not met yet this week, and we're glad to have you with us this morning also. And I echo the words of Brother Mark because I feel that if you feel that your nets have been on the empty side of things, uh, just cast those nets again. You're going to find more fish there in the future than what you've had in the past. And the Lord's going to take care of you. I have no doubt about that. I just want to encourage you. I'd like to say something encouraging to the uh, congregation here at Zion. And in order to do that, I must make reference to some of the dear families that are present with you here this morning who are not members of this congregation, but who would uh, have that desire to be. And so I'm going to say it like this, that it should be very encouraging to know that even though you faced some difficulties here Yet the Lord has so arranged things that there are people around you that are finding benefit, fellowship, hope, opportunity, a home, a haven, a place to not be alone, a place to be with a body, and they're finding that here among you. Do you you realize what that means? Do you understand the value, the promise, the blessing of God that's upon you for that to happen? And so, just just trust the Lord. And he has begun this holy work. He will see it through to the end. And uh, I just want to encourage you with that. I want you to know it's been a tremendous blessing up to now to work with Brother Mark Brubaker and his wife, Anne, with this little project here. And though you have not seen much of us in the last number of months, uh, there's been quite a bit of correspondence back and forth, and uh, some phone calls too. And I do want to encourage you to s- those 17 people who raised their hand this morning, and there'll probably be three more others, Brother Mark, that will raise their hands inside who didn't do it outside. And and you send Brother Mark those little resumes there. What do you think it would take to help restore confidence and trust in the congregation? Uh, it is very easy to uh, damage our trust with each other. It's, many things happen. The mistakes that we make can easily cause an offense and can erode that confidence that we have in one another. That can very easily happen. Restoring that is far more difficult, but it is not as difficult as it might seem. I know that Debilitating that confidence is a very easy step to take, but it's not very hard to restore it either. And uh, this dear brother came from Des Moines this morning with his family of six children. He was standing back here in the foyer when he first got in the door, and he had a little girl standing beside him. I don't know, she may have been about six years old. I don't know how old that little girl was, maybe five. And children seemed to be bigger than what used to be, so maybe she was four. But she was this 
she was standing beside Daddy. So just as a little girl, and I forget what they said her name was. But this little girl was standing beside her daddy, and, and uh, I told the father that the secret of the Christian life is to, to never lose this, to always be this way. Don't ever get away from that, being like that little girl. And then that's all, that's all it takes to restore confidence and trust in a church. That's all it takes, is just be like that little girl. And no one has any trouble believing that little child, trusting that little child, being happy to be near that little child, wanting to see that child smile at you, wanting that child to reach up her, her hand and give it to you. No one would object to that. Everyone would love that. Everyone wants to be part of that. All I need to do is be like that little girl beside her daddy. And confidence comes back in a hurry. There's no threat there. There's no condescension there. There is no... Uh, I'm superior to you there. There's nothing with a little girl that says, you can't match up to me. There's nothing like that there. <laughs> I don't believe you. I don't trust you. Nothing like that there. The only thing she knows how to do is trust. That's what she does all her life. Every time I look at that little girl, she has to look up at me. That's all she knows how to do. Every time she looks at daddy, she must look up. She, she's a little child. If I could be that way, you would have, you would have confidence in me in a short time. It wouldn't take very long. So it's because I was big that you lost confidence in me, not because I was little. It was because of how much I thought I knew and how important I thought I was. That's where confidence goes down. So now, those are a few suggestions that you can start writing down in your papers. This is why confidence is lost. And Jesus set that little child in the midst of him. Can you imagine Jesus taking that little girl that was standing back in that foyer this morning beside her daddy and setting her down in the midst of this congregation saying, this is the way. This will take care of it. So I just share that with you today. It's and it's an easy trip back to confidence. It's an easy trip back to restoring relationships. It's an easy trip. So it's not a hard thing to do. God bless you. The battle's the Lord's. The, that phrase is in your Old Testament about three times. It's not exactly that same order of words every time it's in there. Once Abigail, when she was intercepting David with his men on the way to her husband's house, and it was going to go very ill for Nabal if he would have gotten there, things would not have turned out well for that caustic gentleman if this group of guerrillas would have made it to his house, Abigail stopped that entourage of people and intercepted him and gave, gave David the reasons why she felt he should not continue that journey. David blessed her for that, including the things that she told David as she tried to persuade him to accept her gift that she had brought Rather than going to Nabal's house and finishing what those swords could easily have done, she told him the battle's the Lord's. That's something that all of us ought to be aware of and remember that. Jehoshaphat had a battle with an army that was much greater than his own, and he stood a good chance to losing that battle, had it been up to his resources to make it happen, but he told his people as they were singing, the battle's the Lord's. That phrase is in your Old Testament another time. I don't know if you know where it is, but you can turn to it to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, and we'll read that story there. This story is probably the best-known Bible story in, uh, th- th- that there is. It's known to all of you. It's known to people that do not, are not normally Bible readers. It's a, uh, it is the best-known probably of all Bible stories. And this story presents a couple of problems to people with an 
an orientation towards the doctrine and teaching of the New Testament of non-resistance, we can understand why God would have used David to do such a thing like he did here on this occasion, uh, actually slay a man, kill him. It seems so far into what we understand as, as our way that we, we are called to live. But you must understand that we're living here under the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, when somebody was blaspheming God, when somebody was, dis, was uh, challenging God's holy law, when somebody was refusing to obey that, when somebody was insolent against the divine commandments, when somebody taught against it, resisted it, refused to do it, would not accept it, the law of Moses said that person should be eliminated. And this gentleman that we have in this story took upon himself the awful assignment of trying to defy God. And though people are not slain today who do that, it's a terrible thing to be guilty of. And it's interesting also to me that though David slew Goliath, He did not slay Saul. And Saul came very, very close to be doing the exact same thing that Goliath was doing. But there was one difference between Saul and Goliath. Both men were big. Both men were bigger than David. But Saul was anointed of God. And David respected that. I think that's the only thing that allowed Saul to live as long as he did. Or he would have been gone. But being the anointed of God, David said, I can't do it. You understand that? But as far as his behavior is concerned and his attitude towards God and holy things, it was very, very similar to what Goliath demonstrated. So this story has a history to it, and we won't take a lot of time there because I noticed that that clock does not seemingly have any breaks. And so uh, we'll see if we can move this along. But Saul is the king of Israel. He has a, an enemy that he, he fights with. He is against these people, against each other for the whole 40 years of his kingship. It's the nation of the Philistines. And Saul has a serious problem as he relates to this opposing army. And that is this. That he's doing all that he's doing without the Spirit of God in his life and ministry. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And that is a terrible thing to happen to anybody. For the Spirit of God to leave us. For us to face what we're doing by ourselves. With our own effort and energy and capacity, that's all we've got. The way we can swing a sword, the capacity and practice and experience that we have, that's all we can bring to it. Because the Spirit of God has gone. And at the same time, the Spirit of God departed from this man. That same Spirit of God did something else to another man. Listen to these words. This is right before the story starts in chapter 17. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so it departed from Saul, but came upon David. And David had the very thing that Saul did not have. And the difference between these two men is well defined by that distinctive difference. The one had it, and the other did not. And Saul was much bigger than David. Had far more experience than David was older. David's a shepherd boy. But we have a serious problem here. Trying to do all this work without the Spirit of God. So this man was tormented, this big king, trying to fight the Philistines. He had a lot of problems. He had this mental disturbance. He had, whether it was depression, whether it was some kind of other schizophrenic behavior. He he seems very schizophrenic to me, Saul does. And his men forsook him. You, You don't feel very good. being loyal to somebody who has this kind of unpredictably erratic behavior. And so his men forsook him. 
Many times he was alone. He, his army got down to 600 people at one point. And whereas there was no end to what David could do with 600, Saul could do virtually nothing with 600. So David came at the request of Saul and brought his harp along and spent some time at Saul's house play, playing for him. And, uh, and, so, and Saul appreciated that. And his heart was very, very knitted to this younger fellow here who was so crafty and gifted in his musical skills. And he played this harp to perfection. And this king was gratified. He was, uh, he was kind of blessed there. And his spirit refreshed, I guess, with David's music. But David had gone back home again to his, his father's house and to his task, and his three older brothers were following Saul with the army. I'm supposing that as I'm reviewing these details with you, you are well acquainted with what I'm saying. And there was a large giant there. Your King James Version, in one verse, calls him a champion. He was extremely large. See, two hundred seventy-seven centimeters tall. That would translate into something a little over nine feet in your language. That's a very that's a very tall man, and uh, he did not carry all of his armor by himself. He had someone in front of him that carried the shield. He had the offensive weapons. The the shield was in front of him here. And he came out many, many times defying the armies of Israel and defying the God of his armies and mocking and putting himself up and saying, Here I am. Look at me. Come out here and fight me. Who can do that? He's described for us in chapter 17, verses 4 through 7. There went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A cubit is 45 inches, a span is seven and a half. You can multiply that times times. Uh, Six, and then add seven and a half to it, you'll find out how tall this man was. He had a helmet of brass upon his head, he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat of mail was 5,000 shekels of brass. He had greaves of brass upon his legs, a target of brass between his shoulders, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. It tells us here in these next two verses what he said. When he stood up and defied and mocked and presented himself as the answer to the world's problems, he can handle it all. No God involved. Verse 11 then tells us the effect of his appearance there in the valley between the two camps of the two armies, the Philistines and Israelites. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Another verse that tells us that, they, that most of the armies of Israel tried to hide from him. Didn't want to hear him nor see him and tried to hide from him. There was certainly no, no position to uh, accept his challenge when we're scared, dismayed, afraid, looking for a place to hide. So this is some of the background of the story here. So David comes back, his father sent him to take some things, some gifts, some news. They didn't have WhatsApp at that time. Someone had to bring a message in person. David was going to give some news from the father's house. Wanted to bring back then from these three boys how things were going over there in the army. And so David was sent by Jesse, his father, to this camp. When David got there, this Philistine thought it was about time to stand up and present his wares and announce himself. And David heard that. And David was quite startled by what he observed. He saw everyone's scared attitude and how they all resisted and drew back. 
David thought, there's something wrong here. He expressed himself, and his oldest brother heard his comments and was greatly disturbed by that and became very angry at this young fellow, the stripling of a shepherd boy. And he rebuked his brother sharply. I know what you came out here for. Why did you leave those sheep over there? You better go back home to dad where you belong. David heard that. By the way, you don't build much confidence and trust with each other talking like that. So now here David, he has uh, this paladin, this champion, this giant in front of him. We have the armors of Israel and the God of Israel being mocked and blasphemed. Now his brother rebukes him because of the fact that he has a concern about it and was considering doing something about this. David finds himself appearing before Saul. Saul is convinced that this is an impossibility. This is a poor match. This great big man with all these years of experience, this young fellow here. But, but David tries to give him some reassurance. You know, this is not the first time I've run into difficulties. I, I'm, I'm no stranger to problems. I, I have faced things before. You, I'm just a young fellow, but there's a lion. D- did you ever fight with a lion, King Saul? Do you know what a lion can do? Lions have big teeth inside. And, and, and that lion, when he gets a hold of a sheep, it's a terrible thing. I, I killed one one time. Do you know when a bear comes out and just start, starts to disturb the flock, that's awful for the sheep. They get all scattered and scared. And, and God helped me get rid of that big bear. And this man over here, he is no different from those great big animals. It's the same thing. And, and the God who helped me there, well, then, then the Lord be with you, son. But here, you put this stuff on. Can you imagine Saul, this great big fella, trying to load that fellow down with all that armor? And he had this stuff on his body and picked up these, these, these arms. And David was not able to do that. And so he put it all aside. I suppose that looked pretty strange for Saul to see a young fella dressed in his shepherd's coat headed out across that valley. But David was not quite yet ready to go. I'm not sure if I have the verse I want to read here. Verse 40 of chapter 17. And he took his staff in his hand. You remember children, this Psalm 23, it says, Thy rod and thy staff, they come from me as a shepherd as a staff. He took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his script. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Now, when this giant saw this young fellow coming towards him, he began to mock this young boy. Verse 42. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy, and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog, that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air, and to the beasts of the field. That's what the Philistine said. But, but David had a few things to say. I'd like you to notice that David sp- spoke, speaks for three verses. Verses 45, 46, and 47. I want you to notice as I'm going to read these verses that David does the same thing here before Goliath that he did before Saul. He takes no credit to himself. He refers only to what God can do. 
and helps this great big man to realize that he is not running into impudence here and inexperience. He's not running into youthfulness. He's not running into inexperience. He's facing something that he cannot see. There's a God in heaven. The God in heaven at that particular time was just us sitting in his chair looking down over the edge. The God of heaven was right there and very involved and very clearly in charge. Listen to what David says, 45. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the carcasses to the host of the Philistines. This day, this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So there we have that phrase in the story, the battle is the Lord's. That's the title of our thoughts this morning. This victory that David won here, and I'm not going to say a whole lot about the battle itself. The victory that David won here as this giant fell down, as the stone went out of the sling. You know, the children sing that song, the sling went round and around, and one little stone went up in the air, and the giant fell tumbling down. That victory cost David years and years of tremendous heartache. That victory cost David many years of loneliness, separated from his family. That victory made him a fugitive, hiding in the caves of the earth. That victory had 3,000 people out on the fields and hills trying to take his life. That victory cost David a lot. His, His defense of the God of heaven... His faith in the God of Israel, his willingness to take that risk for God's people cost him greatly. I've often wondered, and I will just say this about David, it's, it sounds a little bit cute. It's not really, it's not really, it doesn't really explain what happens spiritually. You're going to hear that in a few moments. But someone said the difference between David and his three brothers was this. His three brothers' idea was that this Goliath is so big we cannot kill him. And David thought this Goliath is so big I cannot miss him. And I I think there's certainly some truth to that. I cannot miss him. But I do have a question about this story. It's in your Bible. For, For the man of God that Jonathan was, for the victory he had already experienced of the Philistines in chapter 14 of this same book of the Bible. For the union he had with his armor bearer, and they together took on that, that garrison of the Philistines and won a great victory there. Although he had eaten some honey that he should not have eaten according to his daddy. I wonder where Jonathan was on this occasion. I, I wonder, I can understand why David's three older brothers did not step up to the plate and say, we'll take this on. But I don't know why Jonathan didn't do it. It might be the reason he didn't do it was because he respected his father and felt that the, if anyone in Israel gets the glory of this victory, it should be daddy and not myself. Maybe that is why he did it. Maybe he had respect for the eldership. I don't know what it was there. But it would have seemed to me that Jonathan would have been an appropriate person to do this. At this point, David did not know about Jonathan. We find that out in the beginning of chapter 18, when the hearts of the two of them are knit together, and Jonathan then supplies David with something he never had before, and that staff and a sling and some stones is exchanged then for solid armor. And then David begins to use that for the first time in his relationship with the army of Saul. So they became very, very close friends, bosom companions, and that continues on as long as the both of them live. 
So Jonathan, where was he? God was just as available, just as capable of doing with any of those people coming up to that giant what he did when David came. But there was a difference. The difference was not with God. And I don't know what the name of the giant is in your case this morning, in your congregation or family or or business. I don't know in your life, in your marriage, what the name of your giant is. It's not Goliath. I know that. But they're giants. And, 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 And the giant in our lives is the same for all of us. It's too big for us. And there's no possible way we can take care of it. And, and many of us, when that giant is there, regardless of what form he takes and how he presents himself to us in our daily experience, we draw back. We feel there's nothing can be done. We feel the case is lost. We feel that there's nothing we can do about it. We feel that uh, it's just the way things are. Like my daughter says in the telephone when I talk to her from Tennessee, she says, Daddy, it is what it is. I think we look at life like that, and, and we come to the conclusion that there's nothing we can do to change it. But there's something we can do about it. And when David shows up, everyone can feel the change. David is here. And she used to have a question by this time. The question should be in your heart this morning, what was in David that was not in his three older brothers? Same daddy, same mother. There were eight of those boys. David was the youngest one. I was preaching in the state of Virginia. There was a family there that had a lot of needs in their home. The father was not as capable as many daddies are of providing for a family. He had his serious limitations. They had seven children. These children came, I guess they felt, a little bit too close together. And while I was there in that community, the father and mother came to me and asked me, if I felt it would be okay for them to use some method of birth control so that they don't have any more children. And they listed some of the needs and problems they've had in their family that maybe gave rise to their thinking that we probably have had all the children we can handle. And they wondered if I would comment to them about that, would I tell them how I feel? So I prayed about it. And then I did what you're supposed to do, took a piece of paper. I didn't write an email. I took a piece of paper and wrote down an answer to that father and mother. I told him, supposing Jesse and his wife would have practiced birth control after the seventh child. I said, supposing there would have been no eighth boy. Supposing they just would have said, we we don't need it anymore. That's enough of it. No more children for us. So why don't you just pray about that before you go to the drugstore? And they did. About a year later, the eighth child was born in that home. It was a boy. I have no regrets about that. This little fellow comes along, and when he comes to the scene, something happens. And why doesn't that happen when I come to the scene? And why don't I have to bring to the problem, to the need, to the great extenuating circumstance that's debilitating people around us, why don't I have something to offer? And why am I limited? And where is God? And did did he forget how to do this? And can't God take care of it? Is it still too big? It's over nine feet tall. No one can handle that. 
He just simply has to spiral down and debilitate everything until it's all ruined. There's no answer for it. But, But brothers, there's an answer for it. Where did David get this faith in God? I told you he had some experience before with some animals out there, but where did he get that? And any other shepherd boy would have been running for dear life, trying to find a way to get us to get out of there, get away from those animals, and, and David went out and faced those animals. Went after those animals. The lion and the bear. I know we understand that David was the most illustrious king in Israel. We know him as a poet. We know him as a musician. We know him as a warrior that during his lifetime never lost a battle. But David was something far more than all those things. He was a worshiper of the high God. And there's a little secret that we find in the Bible that I really believe that any of you brothers that have been in these brothers' meetings, I really believe that God would like to say this about every one of you. I'm sure also he would like to say it about me. He said it about David twice. Once in each of the two testaments. He said that David was a man after his own heart. So you're sitting this morning, you're a young fellow, you're 13 years old, you're 12 years old, you're 15 years old, you're sitting here in this assembly. And you say, my heart, like God's heart. Could I be a man someday after God's own heart? Uh, Our Spanish Bible says a little bit different. It says they're according to God's heart. Or like God's heart is. Could I have a heart like God's heart? I think that would be a wonderful goal for a young man to have. I want to have a heart like God. David was a worshiper of God. You see, when David did something, he did not do anything by himself. He and God were partners. It reminds me of that verse that's back there about, about Gideon there in the book of Judges. It says in the Hebrew Bible, it says it very nearly the same in our Spanish Bible. Your English Bible is slightly different. That's okay, but I'll give it to you in Hebrew. It says there that the Spirit of God clothed himself with Gideon. So, so what that means is that here's Gideon, and, and you look at that man, you see Gideon, but, but what you don't know is that that's just the clothing, that's just the outer shell of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God clothed himself with Gideon. And what you have in there is Spirit of God. But you see a Gideon on the outside. And when you look at David, you see a David boy, a Rudy boy, a, a, a pleasant countenance little fella. But inside... And David had that relationship with God. He was a partner with God in that way. And so it was not ability. It was not, it was not you know, he had not gone to Cabela's and bought the best sling they had there, slingshot. He, he, he wasn't doing this thing because he was such an expert. He did his part. God did his part. But I want to concentrate on one more thing. Did I, you remember I told you that David was not ready when he picked up that staff to go out to Goliath before he did something. He knelt down beside a brook of water. And looking in there, he chose, he made a selection and chose five stones. The Bible tells you, describes for you the stones that he picked up. He put them in his shepherd's bag. And before he went out there against Goliath, he was not ready to go yet. He knelt down, looked in there, and made a very careful selection. 
put that into his bag before he left. I would just like you, preacher, elder brother, daddy, to look down in your shepherd's bag and see what's in there. And I'd like to ask you, did you choose those stones? Are they in there? Did you choose them? And from where did you choose them? Where did you get them? And are they in there? And for David to have gone down there without that would have been to go disarmed or unarmed. But he had those with him. And now we have a few minutes left to make some practical applications. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and and, in high places and noble places. And it's way beyond us. If we would would see what's against us, if, if we would see the powers that are united against us, against our congregation, against our marriage, against our family, against our youth, against our children, if we would see the powers that are against us, it's way beyond us. It's, it's far greater than what David faced here in this valley. Bigger than that enemy. And it reminds me of what it says back there in Ecclesiastes in chapter 8, verse 8. It tells us there that in your English Bible it says there's no discharge in this war. And in our Spanish Bible it says that no amount of armament will help us in this war. Just having bigger swords, just having a Goliath sword instead of a Saul sword won't do it. Having this big javelin that he had in his hand, like a weaver's beam, and it tells you how, how much the head of that thing weighed. It was made of iron. How much that thing weighed. It tells you. I read it to you. And, and, but those weapons don't do it. Arms do not count in this war. It, it takes something else. It, it's not, not a matter of... I saw... Uh, someone took me on one of these trips we made to the States. Took me to a Cabela's where they sell that sportsman stuff. And I saw something there that I'd never seen in my life. There was a rifle in there that cost over $30,000. And if, 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 you would ha- if that would be yours, it would not help you in this war. And it doesn't help me either. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It's not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. And it takes a spiritual preparation. And we don't do it by ourselves. And we don't get depend upon ourselves. But God depends upon us. And he would be doing it. And he could do it. But, it, but there must be a David there. And there's got to be five little stones in there. And he waits for that until it happens. And that, this giant that we have in this record of chapter 17, what he did when David walked up to him was the 80th time that he did it. And he did not do it the first time. That was the last time he presented himself. He did it twice a day for 40 days. He never did it again. And that should startle us. It should get our attention. And I should sit here this morning and I should ask myself, the three boys, the three elder sons, or David, which am I? When I think about this problem, how do I think about it? Like the three older boys, like David. When I prepare myself to face the challenge, do I prepare myself like the three older boys, like David? Put on the whole armor of God that you be able to stand against the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore. You know, brothers, it's possibly part of a great army and yet not fighting the good fight of faith. I might have my briefcase filled with messages and outlines, but no no smooth stones in my shepherd's bag.
I might be participating in some kind of a ministry. Seems like everyone has a ministry these days, and everyone's involved in some kind of ministry. You hear that word continually. But that does not mean that I'm confronting the powers of darkness. It doesn't mean that I'm making any kind of a difference at all in the lives of people. It does not mean that we're doing anything to cast down the gates of hell. Though my ministry is well known, I can walk through the community with my hands filled with tracks and and torta de la verdad that we pass out, we printed that and pass it out in our village. And not say anything to anybody about Jesus Christ. No different at all from Eliab and Abinadab and Shama, his older brothers. I have my arms, my weapons, I see the danger, I can identify the enemy, but God is not using me. If God is not using a smooth stone that comes out of my bag, it's because I'm not fighting a fight of faith. Faith is the missing thing in my life. If I'm not testifying, if I'm not looking how to seek and to save that which is lost, if I'm not seeking the one out of 99 out of 100 that is going astray, if I'm not trying to make an effort to save a sinner, a lost person for Christ, if I'm not trying to bring back to the church somebody who's gone wrong, if I'm not taking steps to protect my own heart purity, if I'm not involved this morning in helping somebody who's struggling spiritually in my brotherhood, in, my, in, in, in our Christian context, Then you know, I might be a celebrity, maybe somebody who's well known. I might be known as a businessman. I might be doing well in those areas, but there are no stones in, in the shepherd's bag, and the glass will not fall down, and it'll, it'll come out the 81st time. They'll just keep on doing it again. And the needs in the church will continue, and the problems will not be solved. And And where is David? Would David please show up? Jesse, would you please send David? Would you give him some cheeses and a few things to eat for his brothers and send him down to the camp? We need David here. We're not able to handle this. It's too big for us until David comes. Will David please come? And oh, those 17 men raised their hands. Take your hand and reach down here into a bag and bring out a stone. But you can't do that if there's not one in there. New Goliath had nothing to worry about until David reached his hand down in here and put that in a sling. What was, what was Goliath thinking? He was, he was attending his own funeral. Every step he took was towards his death. Those five stones represent something different in the life of each person that is here. Each of us have different gifts, different things we bring to our church, to our family, to our job, to, to our marriage. You have gifts that I don't have. It's one of the reasons I've enjoyed very, very much working with Brother Mark. I've enjoyed very much working with Brother Larry, very much working with Brother Elvin, 
These brothers bring things to the church, bring things to the, like they say, bring things to the table that, that I can't bring. Maybe for some of you, it's the Word of God that abides abundantly within your heart. You're a man of the Bible, a man of the book. You spend time there. You, you, you're absorbed in what you read there. You spend a lot of time meditating there. It becomes part of your life. It affects the words you say. Your, 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 your mind is so filled with spiritual thoughts and the phrases of Scripture that when you talk, it's evident that that's what comes out of your mouth. You're, you're filled with that. Some people spend a lot of time in secret prayer. You're going to be memorizing that the next section of your memory work here in the congregation. The door is shut. You're alone in the presence of God. You hear His voice. And you've learned in your prayer time, it's just not the barrage of words that I send heavenward out of my shotgun. But it's the listening ear. And it's what we hear God tell us when we're in that secret place. And we learn God's heart that way. We receive our instructions that way. And God tells us how to go about it that way. And he inspires our hearts and thoughts with his own meditations, with his own, we, have, we receive from the heart of God. And some of you have made a definite effort and are better than maybe some of the rest of us at maintaining a very clean, clear, and sensitive conscience. Your heart is pure. You live under an open heaven. Nothing there to offend God. Nothing there to offend the Spirit. Nothing to ever grieve the Spirit of God. Nothing to ever quench it. You're very receptive and very responsive. And if God would tell you to stop, to, to, to stop and take care of that little child who was outside the door of your house in the evening when you were so busy making final preparations, you would immediately stop and take care of that child. Your heart is sensitive to that. You've learned that. You've, you've walked to God enough to know to be available for that. And such was David. I don't know what your stone is. It might be your special interest in the lives of others. You cannot stand it to know that somebody is going the wrong way and they're going lost and you must go do something about it. You, it's on your mind. You pray about it. You get in, you put your boots on and go to try to find that person. And sinners know that you have that interest. Sinners know you care. Sinners know that you love them. Now that's what you have in your shepherd's bag. For some people, it might be an intense faith, a deep faith, not only in the power of God, but know that right now, right now, this very minute, we're in the very presence of God. You know, it's, it's not just a matter of having some kind of, uh, of an electric three-phase, who knows what, going through my sword and going out to the other person. And, and it came from who knows where, but it, it's, it, there's some power around here. But no, God is present here. God is right here with us. This child of God, the David of God, needs to be moved with fear like Noah was when he prepared an ark. We need to see that which is invisible like Moses did when he was still in Egypt. We need to have a red cord hanging out the window of our house down over the wall of Jericho like Rahab had. But I'm going to go one step further and then I'm finished. Those five stones. David chose five stones. You all know that. But I'm going to say something about those stones. The actual stones that he pulled out of the water. The Bible says in your language that they were smooth stones. It does not say how big they were. They were not very large. But may I ask you a question? How do rough stones become smooth? And there's an answer to that question. They have to stay within the water. They have to be in moving water. The moving water running over those stones, it has, some, it has some arena in that water, some sand is in that water. And as that s- sand with the flowing current moves over those rocks, it's wearing those rough edges off and making them smoother and smoother, almost like a glossy, glassy covering over those stones. 
I say that to tell you this, that God did not only direct the flight of a stone that left a sling. God prepared the stone in the first place. And when David was there, nearly by the brook, he chose what God had prepared. He was looking at that for that selection. I think of that when I think of our Lord Jesus, and with this I close. Jesus never had a sling, never had stones physical. He did not use spears or javelins. He didn't walk around with the coat of mail, nor did he have a helmet on his head or shield before him. But he was involved in spiritual warfare. And what Jesus used is different from what I'm using this morning. Jesus did not have this piece of paper. And Jesus did not have this book. And Jesus did not have a stack of tracks. Jesus used words. And where did he find those words? He found them in the river. And what is the name of that river where Jesus found those words? He found those words in the river of life. Those words were prepared there. Those words were powerfully formed there. And Jesus spent a lot of time kneeling before the river of life and chose those words and put them in his bag. And no man spake like this man and when they opened his mouth, gracious things came out. And when they spent, sent the, the deputies, the police force, whatever you want to call it, Aguasilis, I don't know what your word is in your language, to arrest him and bring him back to the Sanhedrin, they came back without him. And they were angry because these policemen did not bring Jesus back. But they couldn't do it. We, we heard him speak. And his words are spirit. And his words are life. And his words bless us and give us courage. His words show us the way and they're light to us. And we would not have known how. But those words gave us hope. And opened the door. And shone some light on our path. We couldn't bring him here. We, 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 were, we were moved by what we heard. We, because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And brothers, here we are at Zion. And there's tremendous hope for this church. There's no end to possibilities for this congregation. We have in this Bible, we have in this river of life, the word of reconciliation. We have the word of truth. We have the word of faith. We have the word of salvation. And we have the word of life. We have those five stones that come out of the river. Of the water of life. The battle's the Lord's. You don't need to live with Goliath in front of you. When there's a river of life, and there's stones in that water, and there are choice words and choice messages and choice thoughts that come straight from the heart of God. Now, I would like you to, as we go home, I'd like you to kneel beside that river and choose holy, noble thoughts. And humble yourself there before God and realize that he's with you. And as you, as you choose those words and put them into your heart so that you can share them in, in due season at a proper time and place with someone who's weary, someone who's struggling, 
someone who cannot find their way, someone who's opposing themselves, someone who's making a mistake, somebody who may have done wrong. You have these five choice words that restore and reconcile and give life and salvation. You speak the truth with that abiding blessing of God's presence because the love of God is here. And there's no end to what God will use you to do for his honor and glory in Wellman, Iowa. May God bless you.